This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story from 1949 by Peter Taylor called Porte Cochere. Never once in his life had he punished or restrained them in any way. He had given them a freedom unknown to children in the land of his childhood. Port Cochere was chosen by Marissa Silver, the author of three books of fiction, including the novel The God of War. Five of her own stories have been published in The New Yorker. She joins me from a studio in Los Angeles. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Deborah. So Peter Taylor was one of the first writers who came into your mind when we started talking about this podcast. Why was that? Well, I'm a huge Peter Taylor fan. Um, his novel, A Summons to Memphis, is one of my all-time favorite books. And I think he came into mind because something that I adore about his work is that he takes the smallest, most minute moment and explodes it into an entire world of feeling and an entire understanding of a social class and a, and a piece of history. And this story really typifies that for me. Now, Taylor died in 1994 when he, he was 77. He's a writer who was very popular at a certain time. He published many, many stories in The New Yorker. Not that many people read him now. He seems to have fallen by the wayside a little. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, I think that a lot of modern short stories, they show behavior, but they don't so much always tell you about the emotions that are running underneath it. They try to let the behavior speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that Peter Taylor, like a lot of older writers, you know, really say what they meant. And it's a different kind of storytelling. And sometimes I think maybe for modern people, it seems too on the point. But it's a kind of storytelling that I actually really like, because I think that sometimes behavior is not its own end. And that the obligation of a storyteller or a filmmaker or any kind of artist is to sort of explain what that behavior means. Mm -hmm. Taylor was from, was from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And as you said, he focused quite closely on this sort of area of the South. Do you think he's, do you think of him as a regional writer? You know, I think everybody's a regional writer if they're writing about a region, even if they're writing about New York. New York is a region. It's specific. It's different from any other place. What he did maybe differently than some writers and similar to others is he really stuck to a place, you know, like Flannery O'Connor, like, you know, many more contemporary writers like Richard Russo, like uh, Philip Roth. You know, he took one particular place as his focus. So I don't know, re the term regionalism has a sort of pejorative quality to it. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I don't agree with that. I think that, you know, what, what makes anything great is its specificity. Because in the specifics, you can begin to understand the general. Port Cochere is a relatively early story. It was written when Taylor was 32. And it's also, it seems to me, one of his darker stories. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, aside from the obvious, which is that it's short enough, um, made you choose <laughs> made you choose this story. Well, I guess what, what I liked about Port Cochere is that it shared, along with many of his other stories, his sort of central themes, which are about how the world changes and passes people by, how class change and social change and family change occurs, and how people try to hold fast to their sense of self within that change. Now, just um, for people who don't know what the term porte-cochere means, um, <laughs> do you want to explain that? A porte-cochere is, is sort of an extension of a house under which a car drives. And it's not a garage, per se, because I think it, it goes through to the other side. It's like an overhang for a car to be underneath. We'll talk more after the story, which takes place during a family visit. The adult children of the family patriarch, Old Ben, have come home to celebrate his birthday. 
Now here's Marissa Silver reading Port Cochere by Peter Taylor. Clifford and Ben Jr. always came for old Ben's birthday. Clifford came all the way from Dallas. Ben Jr. came only from Cincinnati. They usually stayed in Nashville through the following weekend, or came the weekend before and stayed through the birthday. Old Ben, who was 76 and nearly blind, the cataracts had been removed twice since he was 70, could hear them now on the side porch, their voices louder than the others. Clifford's the loudest and strongest of all. Clifford's the real man amongst them, he said to himself, hating to say it, but needing to say it. There was no knowing what went on in the heads of the other children, but there were certain things Clifford did know and understand. Clifford, being a lawyer, knew something about history, about Tennessee history he knew, for instance, the difference between Chucky Jack Sevier and Judge John Overton, and he could debate with you the question of whether or not Andy Jackson had played the part of the coward when he and Chucky Jack met in the wilderness that time. Old Ben kept listening for Cliff's voice above the others. All of his grown-up children were down on the octagonal side porch, which was beyond the porte cochere, and which, under the red tile roof, looked like a pagoda stuck out there on the side of the lawn. Old Ben was in his study. His study was directly above the porte cochere, or what his wife in her day had called the porte cochere. He had called it the drive-under, and the children used to call it the portcullis. But the study was not part of the second floor, it opened off the landing halfway up the stairs. Under his south window was the red roof of the porch. He sat by the open window, wearing his dark glasses, his watery old eyes focused vaguely on the peak of the roof. He had napped a little since dinner, but had not removed his suit coat or even unbuttoned his linen vest. During most of the afternoon, he had been awake, and he heard his five children talking down there on the porch. Cliff and Ben Jr. had arrived only that morning, talking on and on in such loud voices that his good right ear could catch individual words and sometimes whole sentences. Midday dinner had been a considerable ordeal for old Ben. Nell's interminable chatter had been particularly taxing and obnoxious. Afterward, he had hurried to his study for his prescribed nap and had spent a good part of the afternoon dreading the expedition to the country club for supper that had been planned for that evening. Now it was almost time to begin getting ready for that expedition, and simultaneously with the thought of it, and with the movement of his hand toward his watch pocket, he became aware that Clifford was taking his leave of the group on the side porch. Ah, yes, at dinner time Clifford had said he had a letter to write before supper, to his wife. Yet here it was six, and he had dawdled away the afternoon, palavering with the others down there on the porch. Old Ben could recognize Cliff's leave-taking, and the teasing voices of the others— and then he heard Cliff's footsteps at the bottom of the stairs. In a moment, he would go sailing by Old Ben's door without a thought for anyone but himself. Old Ben's lower lip trembled. Wasn't there some business matter he could take up with Cliff? Or some personal matter? And now Cliff's footsteps on the stairs? Heavy footsteps like his own. Suddenly, though, the footsteps halted, and Clifford went downstairs again. His father heard him go across the hall and into the living room, where the carpet silenced his footsteps. He was getting writing paper from the desk there. Old Ben hastily pulled the cord that closed the draperies across the south window, leaving only the vague light from the east window in the room. No, sir, he would not advertise his presence when Cliff passed on the landing. With the draperies drawn, the light in the room had a strange quality. Strange because Old Ben seldom drew the draperies at night. For one moment, he felt that his eyes or his glasses were playing him some new trick. Then he dropped his head on the chair back, for the strange quality now seemed strangely familiar, and no longer strange, only familiar. It was like the light in the cellar where, long ago, 
he used to go fetch mason jars for his great-aunt Nell Partee. Aunt Nell would send for him all the way across town to come fetch her mason jars, and even when he was ten or twelve, she made him whistle the whole time he was down in the cellar to make certain he didn't drink her wine. Aunt Nell, dead and gone. Was this something for Clifford's attention? Where Aunt Nell's shacky house had been, the trust company now stood, a near skyscraper. Her cellar, he supposed, had been in the space now occupied by the basement barbershop, not quite so deep or so large as the shop, its area without boundaries now, suspended in the center of the barbershop, where the ceiling fan revolved. Would this be of interest to Cliff, who would soon ascend the stairs with his own train of thoughts and would pass the open door to the study without a word, a glance? And whatever Cliff was thinking about, his law, his golf, or his wife and children, would be of no real interest to old Ben. But did not Clifford know that merely the sound of his voice gave his father hope, that his attention gave him comfort? What would old age be without children? Desolation, desolation. But what would old age be with children who chose to ignore the small demands that he would make upon them, that he had ever made upon them? A nameless torment. And with his thoughts, old Ben Brantley's white head rocked on his shoulders, and his smoke glasses went so crooked on his nose that he had to frown them back up into position. But now Clifford was hurrying up the stairs again. He was on the landing outside the open study door. It was almost despite himself that the old man cleared his throat and said hoarsely, The news will be on in five minutes if you want to listen to it. Then, as though he might have sounded too cordial, he would not be reduced to toadying to his own boy. But if you don't want to, don't say you do. Had Cliff seen his glasses slip down his nose? Cliff, no less than the others, would be capable of laughing at him in his infirmity. I wouldn't be likely to, would I, Papa? Cliff had stopped at the doorway and was stifling a yawn as he spoke, half covering his face with the envelope and the folded sheet of paper. Old Ben nodded his head to indicate that he had heard what Cliff had said, but also to himself. He was nodding that, yes, this was the way he had raised his children to talk to him. Just the hourly newscast, old Ben said indifferently, but it don't matter. Nah, can't make it, Papa. I gotta go and write Sue Alice. This stupid woman staying with her while I'm away bores her pretty much. As he spoke, he looked directly into the dark lenses of his father's glasses, and for a brief second he rested his left hand on the door jamb. His manner was self-possessed and casual, but old Ben felt that he didn't need good sight to detect his poor son's ill-concealed haste to be off and away. Cliff had, in fact, turned back to the stairs when his father stopped him with a question, spoken without expression and almost under his breath. Why did you come at all? Why did you even bother to come if you weren't going to bring Sue Alice and the grandchildren? Did you think I wanted to see you without them? Clifford stopped with one foot on the first step of the second flight. By God, Papa! He turned on the ball of the other foot and reappeared in the doorway. Ever travel with two small kids? The motion of his body as he turned back from the steps had been swift and sure, calculated to put him exactly facing his father. And in hot weather like we're having in Texas? Despite the undeniable thickness in Clifford's hips and the thin spot on the back of his head, his general appearance was still youthful. About this particular turning on the stairs, there had been something decidedly athletic. Imperceptibly, behind the dark glasses, old Ben lifted his eyebrows in admiration. Clifford was the only boy he had who had ever made any team at the university, or done any hunting worth speaking of. For a moment, his eyes rested gently on Cliff's white summer shoes, set wide apart in the doorway. Then, jerking his head up, as though he had just heard Cliff's last words, he began, Two small kids, why don't you use the word brats? It's more elegant. I have traveled considerably with five, from here to the mountain and back, every summer for fifteen years, from my thirty-first to my forty-sixth year. 
I remember, Cliff said stoically. Then after a moment, but now I'm going up to my room and write Sue Alice. Then go on up. Who's holding you? He reached for his smoking stand and switched on the radio. It was a big cabinet radio with a dark mahogany finish, a piece from the late 20s like all the other furniture in the room, and the mechanism was slow to warm up. Clifford took several steps toward his father. Papa, we're due to leave for the club in 30 minutes, less than that now, and I intend to scratch off a note to my wife. He held up the writing paper as though to prove his intention. No concern of mine, no concern of mine. To begin with, I personally am not going to the club or anywhere else for supper. Clifford came even closer. You may go to the club or not, as you like, Papa, but unless I misunderstand, there is not a servant on the place, and we are all going. That is, you are going after you scratch off a note to your wife. Papa, Ben Jr. and I have come well over 500 miles, not to see me, Clifford. Don't be so damn childish, Papa. Clifford was turning away again. Old Ben held his watch in his hand, and he glanced down at it quickly. I'm not getting childish, am I, Clifford? This time, Clifford's turning back was not accomplished in one graceful motion, but by a sudden jerking and twisting of his shoulder and leg muscles. Behind the spectacles, old Ben's eyes narrowed and twitched. His fingers were folded over the face of the watch. Clifford spoke very deliberately. I didn't say getting childish, Papa. Whenever in your life have you been anything but that? There's not a senile bone in your brain. It's your children that have got old, and you've stayed young, and not in any good sense, Papa, only in a bad one. You play sly games with us still, or you quarrel with us. What the hell do you want of us, Papa? I've thought about it a lot. Why haven't you ever asked for what it is you want? Or are we all blind and it's really obvious? You've never given but one piece of advice to us, and that's to be direct and talk up to you like men, as equals. And we've done that all right and listened to your wrangling, but somehow it has never satisfied you. What is it? Go on up to your letter writing. Go write to your spouse, said old Ben. The room had been getting darker while they talked. Old Ben slipped his watch back into his vest pocket nervously, then slipped it out again, constantly running his fingers over the gold case as though it were a piece of money. Thanks for your permission, sir. Clifford took a step backward. During his long speech, he had advanced all the way across the room until he was directly in front of his father. My permission, old Ben said. Let us not forget one fat Clifford. No child of mine has ever had to ask my permission to do anything whatsoever he took a mind to do. You have all been free as the air to come and go in this house. You still are. Clifford smiled. Free to come and go, with you perched here on the landing, registering every footstep on the stairs and every car that passed underneath. I used to turn off the ignition and coast through the drive under, and then think how foolish it was since there was no back stairway. No back stairway in a house this size. He paused a moment, running his eyes over the furniture and the other familiar objects in the shadowy room. And how like the old times this was, Papa. You're listening in here in the dark when I came up. By God, Papa, I wouldn't have thought when I was growing up that I'd ever come back and fuss with you once I was grown. But here I am, and Papa... Old Ben pushed himself up from the chair. He put his watch in his vest pocket and buttoned his suit coat with an air of satisfaction. I'm going along to the club for supper, he said, since there is to be no one here to serve me. As he spoke, he heard the clock chiming the half hour downstairs and Ben Jr. was shouting to old Ben and Clifford from the foot of the stairs, Get a move on up there! Clifford went out on the landing and called down the steps. Wait till I change my shirt. I believe Papa's already. No letter written, Ben Jr. asked. Clifford was hurrying up the second flight with a blank paper. Nope, no letter this day of our Lord. Old Ben heard Ben Jr. say, What did I tell you? And heard the others laughing. He stood an instant by the chair without putting on a light. 
Then he reached out his hand for one of the walking canes in the umbrella stand by the radio. His hand lighting on the carved head of a certain oak stick, he felt the head with trembling fingers and quickly released it. And quickly in three strides, without the help of any cane, he crossed the room to the south window. For several moments he stood motionless at the window, his huge soft hands held tensely at his sides, his long body erect, his almost freakishly large head at a slight angle, while he seemed to peer between the open draperies and through the pane of the upper sash, out into the twilight of the wide, shady park that stretched from his great yellow brick house to the pike. Old Ben's eyes behind the smoked lenses were closed, and he was visualizing the ceiling fan in the barber shop. Presently, opening his eyes, he reflected almost with a smile that his aunt's cellar was not the only Nashville cellar that had disappeared. Many a cellar, his father's cellar, round like a dungeon. It had been a cistern in the very earliest days, before old Ben's time, and when he was a boy, he would go around and around the brick walls and then come back with a hollow sound, as though the cistern were still half full of water. One time, ah, old Ben drew back from the window with a grimace, one time he had been so sure there was water below. In a fright at the very thought of the water, he had clasped a rung of the ladder tightly with one hand and swung the lantern out, expecting certainly to see the light reflected in the depths below. But the lantern had struck the framework that supported the circular shelves and gone whirling and flaming to the brick floor, which Ben had never before seen. Crashing on the floor, it sent up yellow flames that momentarily lit the old cistern to its very top, and when Ben looked upward, he saw the furious face of his father with the flames casting jagged shadows on the long, black beard and high, white forehead. "'Come out of there before you burn out my cellar and my whole damn house to the ground!' He had climbed upward toward his father, wishing the flames might engulf him before he came within reach of those arms. But as his father jerked him up onto the back porch, he saw that the flames had already died out. The whole cellar was pitch-black dark again, and the boy Ben stood with his face against the whitewashed brick wall while his father went to the carriage house to find the old plow line. Presently, he heard his father step up on the porch again. He braced himself for the first blow, but instead there was only the deafening command from his father, Attention! Ben whirled about and stood erect, with his chin in the air, his eyes on the ceiling. Where have you hidden my plow lines? I don't know, sir. And then the old man, with his coattails somehow clinging close to his buttocks and thighs, so that his whole powerful form was outlined, his black figure against the white brick in the door, stepped over to the doorway, reached around to the cane stand in the hall, and drew out the oak stick that had his own bearded face carved upon the head. About face, he commanded. The boy drew back his toe and made a quick military turn. The old men dealt him three sharp blows across the upper part of his back. Tears had run down young Ben Brantley's cheeks, even streaking down his neck under his open collar and soaking the neckline binding of his woolen underwear, but he had uttered not a sound. When his father went into the house, Ben remained for a long while, standing with his face to the wall. At last, he quietly left the porch and walked through the yard beneath the big shade trees, stopping casually to watch a gray squirrel and then to listen to Aunt Sally Ann's soft nigger voice whispering to him out the kitchen window. He did not answer or turn around but walked on to the lattice summer house between the house and the kitchen garden. There he had lain down on a bench, looked back at the house through the lattice work, and said to himself that when he got to be a grown man he would go away to another country where there would be no maple trees and no oak trees, no elms, not even sycamores or poplars where there would be no squirrels and no niggers, no houses that resembled this one, and most of all, where there would be no children and no fathers. In the hall now, old Ben could hear very faintly Ben Jr.'s voice and Laura Nell's and Katie's and Lawrence's. 
he stepped to the door and looked down the dark flight of steps at his four younger children. They stood in a circle directly beneath the overhead light which one of them had just switched on. Their faces were all turned upward in the direction of the open doorway where he was standing, yet he knew in reason that they could not see him there. They were talking about him. Through his dark lenses, their figures were indistinct, their faces were blurs, and it was hard for him to distinguish their lowered voices one from the other. But they were talking about him, and from upstairs he could hear Clifford's footsteps. Clifford, with his letter to Sue Alice unwritten, was thinking about him. Never once in his life had he punished or restrained them in any way. He had given them a freedom unknown to children in the land of his childhood, yet from the time they could utter a word they had despised him and denied his right to any affection or gratitude. Suddenly stepping out onto the landing, he screamed down the stairs to them, I have a right to some gratitude! They were silent and motionless for a moment. Then he could hear them speaking in lowered voices again and moving slowly toward the stairs. At the same moment, he heard Clifford's footsteps in the upstairs hall. Presently, a light went on up there, and he could dimly see Clifford at the head of the stairs. The four children were advancing up the first flight, and Clifford was coming down from upstairs. Old Ben opened his mouth to call to them, I'm not afraid of you! But his voice had left him, and in his momentary fright, in his fear that his wrathful, merciless children might do him harm, he suddenly pitied them. He pitied them for all they had suffered at his hands. And while he stood there, afraid, he realized, or perhaps recalled, how he had tortured and plagued them in all the ways that his resentment of their very good fortune had taught him to do. He even remembered the day when it had occurred to him to build his study above the drive-under and off the stairs so that he could keep tab on them. He had declared that he wanted the house to be as different from his father's house as a house could be, and so it was. And now he stood in the half-darkness, afraid that he was a man about to be taken by his children, and at the same time pitying them, until one of them, ascending the steps, switched on the light above the landing. In the sudden brightness, old Ben felt that his senses had returned to him. Quickly he stepped back into the study, closed the door, and locked it. As the lock clicked, he heard Clifford say, Papa! Then he heard them all talking at once, and while they talked, he stumbled through the dark study to the umbrella stand. He pulled out the stick with his father's face carved on the head, and in the darkness, while he heard his children's voices, he stumbled about the room, beating the upholstered chairs with the stick and calling the names of his children under his breath. That was Marissa Silver reading Port Cochere by Peter Taylor. Taylor's collected stories were recently reissued by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, 
What is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So Marissa, Taylor and his own father struggled a lot. I know Taylor won a scholarship to Columbia and his father wouldn't let him go and his father wanted him to be a lawyer like he was and had the lifelong disappointment of Taylor wanting to be a writer. One of the things that's appealing to me about Port Cochere is that he, Taylor sort of ventures so sympathetically into the psyche of, of the man who was his oppressor in a sense. Now, he was still pretty young when he wrote this and he was still young enough that you would think he was maybe as frustrated and angry as Clifford is. And yet he really sets himself the task of trying to understand what drove his father, I assume, it, you know, to some degree, his father. What do you think about that sort of degree of empathy? Is it something you'd expect? Well, it's definitely something I expect from Peter Taylor, who is really an empathic author and who really does understand the forces at work that make someone angry or mean or behave in a, in a sort of unappealing way. But what I think he manages to do with the story is to show how old Ben is both the father and the son. And I think that the kind of penultimate moment in the story when he remembers going down into the cellar of his father's home and, and dropping the lantern and starting the fire and how he's beaten by that cane allows the reader to completely open their heart to him because you realize that he's still the hurt son as much as his own son is, and that he's sort of straddling both these roles, and he doesn't know how to really do it with grace. He's just struggling. And the the last moment where he's sort of wildly going around his room, flailing at the furniture with this stick with his father's image uh, carved on it is such a kind of wonderful physicalization of his inability to do this with any kind of elegance or grace. I mean, you were saying earlier that, that Taylor wrote a lot about change. One of the things that's remarkable for me about this story is the way he shows how little changes and how difficult it is to change. You know, there's old Ben is trying to be different from his father. And what he does is he, he replaces one form of violence with another. Um, right. Whether it's, you know, physical violence or psychological violence. Yeah. I mean, I think that what's so interesting, and, and there are some stories that Peter Taylor writes that are sort of more obviously about social change and class change. But even within this story, you know, you hear about the quote unquote nigger when he was a child. And of course, that's not the case now. And now the help is off. The help has a day off. No one's there to feed him. The, the way that the, the Port Cochere is called different things by different people in the family gives you a sense that that kind of old Southern aristocratic world where the French influence, the kind of um, old faded aristocratic influence has really changed. You really get that in very tiny ways throughout the story. And there's Ben stuck in this room, which is really the kind of most marvelous thing about the story is that old Ben never leaves this room. The world is moving and changing without him, and he he really is stuck there. There's sort of a great metaphorical quality to it as well, this this idea of this room that's between floors. 
you know, that he's between forms of life and between generations, and he can't go with either one of them. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact in the story that not only is he stuck in this room where the light changes perceptibly as the story goes on, and then, of course, that he's nearly blind so that his ability to see anything is so limited, but that everything that he is experiencing, he's hearing in bits and pieces. He hears snatches of dialogue. He hears voices. He's kind of reaching for some connection with his family and with the world, and he really has so little of it. Um, and then also at the end, so um, little ability to make it because he locks himself in the room. He chooses to lock himself away from them. He can't make that connection either. He can't make that step to figuring out how to be a father that's not mean, that's not angry, that's not putting down his children. It's interesting you, you say that about the light in the study. I mean, I, I definitely noticed how much play there was on the notion of lightness and darkness here, you know, and starting with old Ben's father, who's always this black figure with a black beard, mm -hmm. and then kind of continuing with Ben with his dark glasses on, and he's kind of lurking in the darkness, and he steps out, he's still in this sort of dark stairwell, and his children are standing directly under an overhead light. And then as they sort of merge up the stairs, they turn the light on and, and shine it on him. Yeah, it's almost a Shakespearean use of that image. Yeah, it's sort of, it's very, it's very dramatic. And he runs back into the dark and closes the door. <laughs> right. Although at the very end of the story, it says, in the sudden brightness, old Ben felt that his senses had returned to him. Mm -hmm. So he has this moment of kind of an emotional clarity, even though he doesn't really understand it. And then is flailing away at the couch cushions and, you know, it's like the combination of the hatred and the love that he feels for his children and the hatred and the love that I imagine he felt for his father. It's like all mixed up together. And I think that's so much the experience of life is it's never one thing or the other. You know, you never really feel devoid of the negative feelings. They're all mushed up together. And I think that's what Peter Taylor does so beautifully is allows us to see how complicated and inextricably bound those mixed up feelings are. Yeah, I mean the the first probably thousand words of the story are are really incredible. There's this character who's so unlikable, and yet he's just burning up with this adoration of his son and this desire to draw his son closer to him. I know it's heartbreaking. It's, it's <laughs> and yet the moving. way he does it is so awkward and awful. And you know, I mean, I think people. It, it's also you. You've had these relationships in your life where all you want is to be loving, or all you want is to be close, and you say the thing that that, that pushes the person away so much. Mm -hmm. And he can't rectify those feelings. He has this incredible resentment of his children because they are freer than he ever was. You know, he he had a father that beat him up and, and he didn't beat his children. And, and, you know, I think he resents that fact in a funny way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, that the old saw that everybody says, you know, I had to hike seven miles to school when I, you know, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like, you know, you, you've given your children these advantages and yet you have to let them know how how disadvantaged you were. Yeah. I know that after the story came out, um, Taylor had a visit from his own father, which was very combative and unpleasant. And uh, after that, he didn't he didn't write about him again until he died. Oh, really? <laughs> about 15 years later. So clearly it was taken somewhat personally, this portrait, no matter how loving it is. Mm -hmm. You get the sense that, that old Ben reading this about himself would not have found it as sympathetic as we do. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing that you know, makes me think a little in this story is that, you know, old Ben puts his study above the porte-cochere so that he can spy on the kids. To me, they seem a little complicit in it, too. Why Why are they on the side porch where they know he can spy on them? They seem sort of to play into it a little bit. You're right. I, I never thought of that. So either they're playing into it or they just simply don't care. Yeah. 
at this point, he's, he's perhaps irrelevant. Well, he feels that he is. I mean, whether he is or not, we don't really know. You know, I don't, I don't think that their behavior in the story is bad. I mean, they're just, you know, kids together, seeing each other. Probably they haven't seen one another for a long time. He's tired. They had lunch. He went up to his room. You know, he sort of cuts himself off. He's the one who makes that choice. You mentioned earlier his uh, old Ben's use of the word nigger. And I wondered, you know, reading it now, obviously it has shock value. Would that have seemed shocking in 1949? Well, certainly not in the South. You get the sense that this may be sort of poised on the cusp of when it was just not usable anymore in fiction. But it's and sort of a word that so so completely draws a scene, you know. Yeah. You totally get the the world that he grew up in from there's that nanny or whoever cook or whatever she is who's sort of whispering to him because she's trying to calm him or you know mother him in the way that that those relationships happen that they were sort of the you know the mother sub rosa so it really paints a whole picture of a world a a few months after the story was published taylor's first story collection came out and it was reviewed in the partisan review by elizabeth hardwick had some kind of harsh things to say about him I'll, i'll just quote a couple of lines She said, Taylor appearing in book form for the first time is even now a kind of A student, modest, corrigible, and traditional. He is too serene, too precocious. In his stories, one longs now and then for harshness, indiscretion, that large early ugliness a young writer can well afford, a battle with the inexpressible. Do you think that that criticism was justified? Ah, critics. (laughs) Except it was Elizabeth Hardwick, so we have to be nice. Yeah, Yeah. I wish she was Um, a good critic. I think that that's not the writer he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't that guy. He was a he was a courtly, I mean, at least in his work. I don't know what kind of guy he was, but his mm-hmm. work has a kind of courtly quality to it. It has a, a restraint. I think that this story in particular has an incredible kind of emotional energy and an incredible anger that, that is all those things. But I mm-hmm. think that he's not the young, you know, upstart writer. He's not. Oh, he's not, yeah, he's not Henry Miller. Yeah, exactly. Oh. I mean, that's just not who he is. I yeah. mean, whether you can be criticized for not being the person that you are, I don't know. And he may have felt he, he needed a certain stateliness beneath which to place the ugliness. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of graciousness to his writing that I really love. It's a kindness. You know, the fa- his father obviously didn't dig it, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure I would want to read the story that my kid wrote about me. Yeah. Um, and I just think that he's the writer he is. I mean, he comes out of a upper middle class courtly world where there there were certain ways of being and certain ways of speaking, and that's very much what he writes about, and it's very much in the style in which he writes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Marissa Silver's novel, The God of War, came out in paperback in April. Her latest story will appear in the magazine this fall. Three of her stories can be found on our website, newyorker.com, where you can also find dozens of previous fiction podcasts. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.